Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Hebrews chapter 4, I'll begin by reading the first 13 verses of this chapter as we speak on the promise of gospel rest. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us, of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, As I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief, Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus, or Joshua, if you please, had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest He also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You'll notice the repetition in this passage of the concept of rest. The word actually appears nine times in these 13 verses. And it's one of the sweetest words in human vocabulary, rest. Now, if you're not laboring, then rest can be cumbersome. But to the laboring man, the promise of rest or sleep, physically speaking, is precious, isn't it? It's a sweet thing to lay down at night. The theme of Hebrews, if you recall, is the greatness or the superiority of Jesus Christ. Christ is the subject, and he is greater, the writer says, than all of the heroes in Jewish history. He's talked about the fact that Christ is greater than the angels in the first chapter. He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than Moses, we learned in the third chapter. Of course, there was no one greater in the minds of Hebrew people than Moses. He was the prophet that led them out of Egypt, that sustained them under the providence of God in the wilderness. Moses was great, but Jesus is greater than Moses says the writer in Hebrews chapter 3. Now in this fourth chapter, we learn he's greater than Joshua. 
And the reference to Jesus in verse 8 in our English Bibles is actually, as you noted in my reading, a reference to Josh Forth. Jesus had given them rest. He's talking about the past history of the Hebrews. And Joshua in the Hebrew is translated as Jesus in the Greek. For if Joshua had given them rest, he wouldn't have spoken of another day. That is, there's a rest greater than the rest that Joshua gave them when he brought the children of Israel into the land of Canaan. That was a physical rest. But my beloved, there's a gospel rest that is available to you and me today, a rest in our souls that is even superior to the rest of the physical inheritance of the promised land of the children of Israel. So what the apostle is doing in this passage in chapter 4 is he is continuing from the previous chapter to draw comparisons between the familiar story of the Exodus and the subsequent 40-year journey in the wilderness and the crossing of the Jordan and entering into their inheritance in the land of Canaan under Joshua's leadership. He's continuing to use that familiar story to draw parallels to the Christians to whom he addresses this letter in the first century of the history of the church. He wants them to see that the story of their ancestors mirrors in many respects what is going on with them. Just as they needed a deliverer to deliver them out of Egypt and bondage, so we need a deliverer to deliver us from the bondage of sin. Jesus is our Moses. Just as they faced the peril of unbelief in the wilderness. You remember we said that it was an 11-day journey from where they crossed the Red Sea to the border of Canaan's land. 11 days. That 11 days journey took them 40 years. They could have gone directly into the promised land, but they ended up wandering in meaningless and aimless circles in the wilderness for 40 long years. And why was that? Because they didn't trust God. It was because of unbelief. You remember the story, don't you, how the spies came back from spying out the land of Canaan? Moses had dispatched 12 spies, one from each tribe of Israel to go view the land and to bring back a report, a reconnaissance mission. Ten of the spies came back and said, it's a good land. They brought back a cluster of grapes. You may recall that took uh, two men to carry it on a pole between them. That's larger than most of the grapes you'll find at the local grocery store. This cluster of grapes took two men to carry it. That's how replete the harvest was in that land. It was a land that flowed with milk and honey, which probably is a euphemism for prosperity and satisfaction. It's not a desert. Now, they've been in the desert for 40 years. If you know anything about the Sinai Peninsula, between the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, you know, dear friends, that it is a barren, desolate land. They've been there for 40 years, walking in the Sinai Peninsula, but now they come to the Jordan River and they're about to enter into the promised land and the spies say it's a good land but there are too many obstacles there are giants over there the sons of Anak are there and the cities are walled to the sky in fact there's a city right after we cross Jordan called Jericho that is impregnable 
There's no way that we can take it. They're skilled in war. We're just a bunch of nomads and Bedouins in the desert. We're not a skilled army. And there's no way that we can take the land. But two of the spies brought back a gospel report. Good news. They said, yes, it is a good land, and we are well able to overcome it. The God who brought us out of Egypt will deliver it into our hands. Those two spies were named Joshua and Caleb. Those two spies believed God. They preached the gospel. Notice verse 2 of our text. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. You see, he's drawing a comparison between this familiar story in Hebrew history and the present circumstance of these Christians in the first century of the church. He's saying, we've had the gospel preached to us. And there he has reference, no doubt, to the Christian evangel, the Christian gospel, the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. But he said they had a gospel preached to them in a sense as well. Now we know that that's not talking about the gospel technically speaking. He's not saying that they understood the cross of Christ, the work of Christ on Calvary by substitution to redeem his people from their sins. He's not saying that they heard the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified, but he's saying they had good news preached to them. And what was the good news preached to them? It's a good land. It's filled with milk and honey. It's replete with produce and with crops. It has rolling hills and verdant meadows. It has wonderful pasture land. It is a secure land. It is a pleasant place to live. Picturesque. That was good news to those people. But you see, those spies undercut their good news by saying, but we can't take it. Unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. And you see what the apostle is doing in this fourth chapter of Hebrews as he reminds them of this story of the Exodus. You've been delivered from Egypt, and now you've gone through the wilderness, but you've stayed there as long as you have, he says, because of the evil report, because of unbelief that we can't take the land. And then Joshua is going to lead them in after 40 years. We know that story, don't we? Joshua gave them rest. Not in an ultimate sense, not like Jesus gave us rest, but he did give them rest, rest from wandering in the wilderness. So you understand that as he reviews the narrative concerning the exodus, the wilderness wanderings, and the entrance into Canaan's land, he wants them to make the application to their situation right now. I want you to notice now the promise of rest. Let us therefore fear, says verse 1, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. The promise that God has given us is rest. Again, what a sweet promise that is. And he employs two events in this context from the Old Testament to illustrate the gospel rest that is available to you and me today. First, he references the rest of creation. Notice verse 4. For God spoke in a certain place on the seventh day, on this wise, God did rest the seventh day from all his works. Now that's the rest of creation. You may recall in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, it says that God finished in six days, he finished all the work of creation which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day, from all of his work. Of course, God did not rest because he was tired, but he rested because he was finished. And by the way, the Sabbath rest on the seventh day 
is a rhythm that God has built into the fabric of his creation, of, of his world, that he intends to be followed by all mankind. Six days thou shalt work and labor, and on the seventh thou shalt rest. And notice he didn't say you're to work seven days, burn the candle at both ends. Man is to work six days, and then he's to take one day for rest. And we need that to recharge our batteries, don't we? We need that physically to reset our uh, focus. One day of rest, six days of work. Now, he didn't say six days of rest and one day of work. That's the way many people would like to do it. You know, you've got two extremes today. You've got the restaholics and the workaholics. The restaholics are the folks who want to rest six days and work only one day out of seven. The workaholics are those who want to work seven days out of seven. But God's formula is six days thou shalt labor, and on the seventh thou shalt rest. Now notice these two thoughts, labor and rest. God labored, then rested. Our text says, let us labor to enter into that rest. This reflection from the creation narrative and the principle of Sabbath rest is used here to illustrate the promised gospel rest that is available to you and me today. And then the second event from the Old Testament used in this passage to illustrate the gospel rest that is available to you and me today is the rest that the children of Israel enjoyed when they finally came into Canaan's land under Joshua. Now, he did give them rest, but he didn't, again, give them ultimate rest. And we know that because... Psalm 95, which was written many centuries after the original story of Joshua leading the children of Israel into Canaan's land, Psalm 95 speaks of a future day, a rest that remained for the people of God that was coming in Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy 25, 19 talks about the rest, though, that God would give them when they came to Canaan's land. Listen to this. Therefore it shall be when the Lord thy God hath given thee rest, says Moses, from all thine enemies round about, in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it, that thou shalt then blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, thou shalt not forget it. He says God is going to give you rest in the land of Canaan. You say, then, Brother Mike, why didn't they enter into that rest? (laughs) Well, because the word preached did not profit them. When Joshua and Caleb said, we can take the land, we are well able to overcome it under the blessing of God. If God can part the waters of the Red Sea, then he can conquer Jericho. If he can deliver us from Pharaoh's stranglehold, he can deliver us from any enemies that we might face in the future. You know, that's the way faith thinks, right? Faith reasons from past deliverance to present crises. It says, if God can do this, then he's able to do this. If God could take care of you for all of the years that you've been living upon this earth, my friend, don't you think he can solve your problems today that you face? Don't you think he can take care of you in the future? That's the language of faith, the logic of faith. And Joshua and Caleb preached the gospel, but you see, the people did not believe them. They believed the 10 spies that said the obstacles are too great rather than the two that trusted God. And I want you to notice then that this promise of rest is a conditional promise. You may have heard the word if several times in the text. Verse 3, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest. Verse 5, and in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. 
And of course, we saw it back in chapter 3, didn't we? Verse uh, 14, we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Now, I dare say, dear friends, there's not an if in terms of the message of eternal salvation. That is, the work of Christ is not contingent on any condition in you or me. Your eternal salvation is unconditional, not conditional. We believe in unconditional, eternal salvation. In other words, somebody says, if you want to go to heaven when you die, then Jesus did his part, but you have to meet the conditions on your side. You have to do your part. I'm so glad that's not true, my friends. I'm so glad Jesus paid it all. Not 85% of it or 90% or even 99.9%. He paid it all. He's canceled the debt. He finished the work. He said, it is almost done on the cross. No, he said, it is finished. And I don't believe he just used words willy-nilly, my friends. He did it on purpose. When he said it's finished, he meant he had perfected forever them that are sanctified by that one offering. Indeed, our home in heaven is unconditional. But I want to tell you, discipleship depends upon your obedience in mind. That is, there are blessings to be had in this world, in the gospel, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, that are in fact conditional, if you hold fast your profession of faith unto the end. If you will enter into his rest, you must meet the condition. That's what the language in verse 1 indicates. Let us therefore fear. Anytime you read one of the let us statements in the book of Hebrews or in the Bible as a whole, I dare say that is language that should be our cue, that he's talking in terms of discipleship, not sonship, that he's speaking of temporal, not eternal salvation. Let us. You see, here's something you're to do. You'll notice this formula four times in chapter four, let us therefore fear, verse one. Let us labor to enter into that rest, verse 11. Verse 14, let us hold fast our profession. And verse 16, let us come bold to the throne of grace. Somebody says, you primitive Baptists don't preach that there's any responsibility for people. Oh, we do. If we preach an accurate gospel, we preach that there are things we should do. Let us fear, let us labor, let us hold fast. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace. There's a responsibility for you and me, but my friends, it's not something you're to do or I'm to do in order to be saved from our sins. Because Jesus has already met every condition when he represented you and me upon the cross of Calvary. He came as your substitute. You know, when a substitute goes in for you on the baseball diamond, the coach sends in a pinch runner to run for you, and you're out of the lineup now, and he goes and takes your place in the outfield where you played center field, he goes to substitute for you. I'll tell you, at that point, you are discharged from obligation when the substitute takes your place. And when Jesus Christ came as my substitute to represent every one of the objects of his love that God had given to him in the covenant before time began, my beloved, I'll, I dare say that what he did, he did it on your behalf and you have been discharged any obligation as a result of his finished work. The Father has received his work on your behalf as if you had done it. Fact is, you couldn't have done it. You would have messed it up, and so would I. But Jesus did it perfectly. 
And my beloved, may I say, he met all of the conditions necessary for you and for me and for all of his elect to be housed safely in the Father's presence forever and ever. He did that once and for all upon the cross. But therefore, on the basis of what he's done, let us be careful to live in a manner that is consistent with the gifts of grace that he has bestowed upon us. You see, this is a conditional promise. The promise being left us of entering into his rest. That's why he says, let us labor in verse 11. You see, there's a work, there's a labor for you to perform. And if you and I just sit back and say, well, if God wants me to serve him, he'll make me do it. No, he's not going to make you obey him. Now, he might make you wish that you had obeyed him, but he's not going to force you or compel you. You're to labor. You see, I, I have to study if I want to preach. I have to make an effort to read the word of God if I want to keep my thinking straight. There's work involved in living the Christian life. We're living in a day in which uh, things come easy, comparatively speaking, to previous generations. You know, it wasn't always easy to get a meal prepared. Today, you can go down to Dollar General and pick up some sausage biscuits for breakfast, like I did this morning, and pop them in the microwave, and in a minute or a minute and a half, all you've got to do is take out strawberry jelly and put it on it, and you've got breakfast right there. You say, well, Brother Mike, that's not easy. You have to go down and get it. And you have... But it's a lot easier than it was in former days, right? When you had to actually slay the hog and you had to cure the meat, right? And you had to store it somehow and try to make sure that it didn't spoil on you. And you had to get the chicken eggs and you had to do all of the work. You see, life comes so easily. In a day in which life is relatively easy, for you and me, and I'm glad it is. I wouldn't want to go back. But I do miss the simplicity and the family orientation of the former days. But uh, in a day like this, my beloved, folks aren't real keen on laboring to get something. And we would like to say, Lord, just zap me from heaven with a lightning bolt of blessing. Just infuse within me. I, I don't want to have to read the Bible, Lord. I've got all these shows I need to catch up on. I don't want to have to spend time in prayer. I don't want to have to go to church, Lord. Why should I put forth any effort? I'm telling you, dear friends, if you want to live the Christian life and receive the gospel rest that is available to you and me, you've got to labor. You've got to do some work. You've got to make an effort. Now, here I am talking to you today, and you made the effort to be here. I'm so glad you did. But you know it's not easy, is it? I mean, uh, that bed gets awfully comfortable. And as time goes on, you say, Preacher, I just, uh, I just get more and more t tired. I'm so glad to see a, some folks this morning before the service began and for them to say, oh, I'm not feeling quite up to par, but I made the effort and I'm here. I'm so glad you are. And I hope you receive the blessing that comes in the sound of the gospel for putting forth this labor. You see, the point that the apostle is making here is this is a conditional promise. And it's a promise, he says, that has been left us. Do you see those two words in verse 1? Therefore let us fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest. Now the idea is that like a customer at a restaurant would leave a tip or gratuity on the table for the waitress. Somebody asks, what is that money doing on the table? Well, that's been left for the waitress. And Jesus Christ has left a blessing for you and me. You know, primitive Baptists do not preach that God accomplished salvation, but you have to go and claim it. That salvation's available, and all you've got to do is accept it. We preach that the God who accomplished it also 
gifts it. He sends it into your heart. He's given it to you freely. And it doesn't depend on whether you claim it or not. But I'll tell you in terms of discipleship, it does depend on whether you claim it. You see, what will happen if the waitress never comes by and claims her gratuity? What if she never picks it up? Well, one of the folks that cleans the table will probably pick it up then, right? You see, she's got to claim it. And I do believe that there's a sense, my friends, in which there are blessings to be had, but you have to claim them. They're conditional upon you and me today. There's a promise that has been left to us, the legacy of the Lord to his people in this world. It's the promise of rest. It's a better rest than the Sabbath rest of creation. That one day of physical cessation from activity. You say, oh boy, I'm just so glad to be able to sit back and rest for a little while. Physically, I need to recharge my batteries. Well, this is a better rest than even physical rest. And it's a better rest than the political rest that the children of Israel enjoyed when God gave them rest from their enemies. And they were able to find a permanent dwelling place in the land of Canaan. This, my friends, is a spiritual rest. It's a Sabbath in your soul. It's a happy time of respite and refreshment in your heart of hearts. But you see, it depends on your willingness and your readiness to labor, to claim it. It's been left for you and me. But he says, be afraid that what happened to the children of Israel in the wilderness would happen to you as well, that any of you should seem to come short of it. This is a conditional promise. And I think that language of coming short is interesting. You know, one of the things I love about the book of Hebrews is the writer frequently draws from imagery that we can identify with. If you'll remember back in the second chapter, in the first verse, he talked about the danger of letting the things that we've learned and heard slip away. And we told you that that language describes a rope that has been tied at dock, but it hasn't been knotted properly And it comes loose from its moorings. And the boat then begins to drift. That's an image that we can identify with. You know, that can happen in your spiritual life. If you don't take care to fasten the things of Christ and the truths of his word securely in your mind, if I don't, my friends, we could let them slip away and we just start to drift in life. That's one of the images in Hebrews. Another one that we saw in the third chapter was when he said that if we have an evil heart of unbelief, We will depart from the living God. And we talked about the fact that uh, that language in departing from the living God means to stand aloof, to keep your distance. You ever been around somebody that kept their distance? Well, that's been a regular occurrence in the past year, hasn't it, with social distancing, you know? People just keep their distance. You say, listen, there's no reason to be afraid of me. I'm not a threat. Uh, But people want to keep their distance. And there are a lot of people who do that with God. I want to go to church, but I'm going to keep my distance, Lord. I'm just not going to get be full. I'm not going to be all in. I'm not going to be fully committed. I just want to maintain enough distance to where people think I'm spiritual, but not a fanatic. Well, my friends, don't worry about that criticism there. I don't think any of us are in danger of being called fanatics, are we? But uh, there's this tendency in people to want to keep their distance. He says, unbelief is the attitude that stands aloof from God keeps its distance. Here's the third image in Hebrews in our text this morning. It's the image of coming short. Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. And that language means to fall shy of the goal. 
to fall shy of the goal. First thing I think of whenever I imagine that idea of coming shy of the goal is a football team that ends up just a few inches from the winning touchdown. If you're a Dallas Cowboy fan, you've certainly seen games in which they've come just shy. You know, they say football is a game of inches. That's right. And I know several occasions when my favorite team has come inches shy of the winning touchdown that would have sent them on into the playoffs. And he says in the Christian life, my friends, you can get real close to the finish line, but yet just come shy. You ever watched a video of a track meet in which one runner mistook the finish line for one of the marks on the track that are before the finish line and he pulled up a little too soon and somebody passed him? He just came shy of victory, right? He came short. He fell short of the goal. I think of a student who works for 12, 13 years through school, come to find out just a few weeks before graduation, the uh, guidance counselor says, I'm sorry, but our tally shows that you are one class shy of the credits needed to graduate with your class. You've heard stories like that, haven't you? And you say, oh, all of these years, and I can't even walk with my class. I can't wear the cap and gown. I can't walk across the stage with my peers on graduation day. I have a class to make up. I'll do it over summer break through summer school, you know, and I'll end up getting my diploma privately, but yet I just fell a little bit short. He says, brethren, be afraid. <laughs> Let us fear. Let us take this seriously. This is important, lest a promise being left you and me today that you should come up shy of reaching that promise. Plato used the same language in this verse, coming short, the same Greek word in one of his literary works to mean to come after the festival has ended. <laughs> I've heard stories of preachers. Now, thank the Lord, I've not done this yet. But I mean, it's not over yet. But I've heard stories of preachers that forgot about an appointment or had written it on their calendar a week too late. And they showed up the next weekend and they called the deacon and said, where is everybody? I thought you were having a meeting this week. He said, that was last week. <laughs> to show up after the festival has ended, to come short of it. Used to have a precious couple in one of the churches that I pastored that were notorious. They had the reputation of being somewhat absent-minded in a loving sort of way. And every year when the clocks sprang forward, when the time sprang forward, they forgot to set their clocks forward. And inevitably, invariably, that Sunday morning, right as we were closing in prayer, they would show up <laughs> and say, what, the service is over? So yeah, the time changed last night. And they, they got there just a little bit too late, you see. Interestingly, my friends, this is the language used in, same language in chapter 12 of Hebrews, verse 15, when he says, looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God. That word fail means to come short. It means to come up shy, to come after the festival is ended, looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God. And then he cites this illustration. He says, like Esau, verse 16, 
who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright, that is, he made a decision based on the spur of the moment, but he didn't think about the long-term implications, and he says, for you know that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. Remember the story? Jacob had gone in and hoodwinked his brother and stolen the blessing from his blind, aging father, Isaac. And when Esau came in and said, bless me too, father. Please bless me. He said, I don't have another blessing. I've already given the family blessing to Jacob, and I can't do that again. When Esau would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. He came up just shy. I believe that the particular event to which the writer refers here is in Numbers 1440. When it speaks of the people that said, uh, we can't go up, we, they believe the ten spies, and they said, no, we can't take the city but the next morning, it says in Numbers 14.40, they rose up early in the morning and they got them up into the top of the mountain and they said to Moses, Lo, here we are, we be here, and we will go up unto the place which the Lord hath promised, for we have sinned. We're, we're sorry. We apologize for our initial unbelief, but Moses, we're ready now. We're ready to go. Let's go do battle. Let's go get this land. And Moses said, Wherefore now do you transgress the commandment of the Lord? What you're doing shall not prosper, he says. Go not up, for the Lord is not among you, that you be not smitten before your enemies. But they presumed to go up anyway to the hilltop. Nevertheless, the Ark of the Covenant and Moses departed not out of the camp. And the Amalekites came down and the Canaanites which dwelt in the hill and they smote them and discomfited them. Even unto Hormah, they were defeated in the battle. You see, they were too late. They came up shy. My friends, don't think that the Lord will strive with his people forever. He's a long-suffering God, but he has a point at which his patience comes to an end. Right? Let us fear. Somebody says, oh, the church will be there whenever I'm ready for it. But right now, I have more pressing concern. I'm pursuing my life goal. I'm going to make my millions. My friends, don't assume that it'll be there. And don't assume that you'll be healthy enough and of a frame of mind and that circumstance will be such that you have the freedom that you do right now. Let us fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. So what is the condition to this promise? I said it's a conditional promise. What is the one condition that is needed in order to enjoy this promised rest? Faith. Notice he says in verse 2, the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them. They needed to believe the word. They needed to act on the word of God. Verse 3, for we which have believed do enter into rest. Faith is the condition. And consequently, the great obstacle to the enjoyment of rest, spiritual rest in your heart this morning, my friend, is unbelief. Chapter 3, verse 12 says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. 3.19, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Why did the Israelites fall in the wilderness? You remember, don't you, that none of that original crowd entered into the land of Canaan. They all died in the wilderness except for two, Joshua and Caleb, the two spies that believed God. And the people that they led into the promised land were, was the next generation, 20 years of age and younger, who had now grown up. 
But all of the original people who had participated in the Exodus, they perished in the wilderness. Now, were they children of God? I mean, had God delivered them from Egypt? Absolutely. But they died just shy of finding the rest that was available to them in this world. My friends, God has many children that he's delivered from the bondage of sin. And they'll all, even the bones of Joseph, if you please, will end up in heaven. But many of them live their lives in the wilderness, and they never find true peace, true rest. As we sang a moment ago, there is a place of quiet rest near to the heart of God. But how many people never know that rest? Anxiety and worry and care and concern and inner turmoil are present in their hearts on an ongoing basis. They never know the peace the quietness, the satisfaction that is available to the people of God. And it's because even though they hear the good news, my friends, they fail to heed it and to embrace it. Unbelief. Unbelief is a matter of distrusting the word of God, the promise of God. And may I say unbelief, if I could give you a definition this morning, it's basically this. It's a preoccupation with the past. It's an attitude that looks longingly backward. Opting for personal safety instead of obedience to God. That's really what happened in the wilderness. Have you ever noticed how many times they wanted to go back to Egypt? How many times when they faced crises, they murmured and complained? I mean, God gave them water to drink, but they wanted more than that. He gave them manna to eat, but they wanted flesh. They wanted the flesh pots of Egypt. They complained. <laughs> they grumbled and murmured. You know, somebody said, the Bible's just not relevant to today. I'm telling you it is. For uh, There are a number of us who have that tendency to just grumble and murmur and complain about everything. Too hot, too cold, too dry, too rainy. People are in too much of a hurry. Too much traffic, not enough traffic to keep business going. I mean, not, I don't, I'm not saying it's wrong to notice that there are things that could be better. But my friends, we need to live our lives with a thankful attitude. Every day, you have so much for which to be thankful today. Don't allow the murmuring germ to replicate in your soul, my friends. Because before you know it, it will take over your life. And you'll forget to be mindful of your many blessings Somebody says, oh, I love that song. Count your many burdens. Name them one by one. Now, I know some of you have burdens. Some of you have some really big problems. And I, I know that they wear heavy upon your soul today. But I'm saying that in spite of it all, you've been amazingly blessed. I've been phenomenally blessed by God. I have eyesight today. Now, it's not perfect vision, but at least I have some glasses that help me to see. I have fairly good hearing, except for when it's not. I have a, I mean, I'm reasonably straight. I, my, my limbs still work and I'm able to maneuver and I have transportation and a place to live and people to interact with and people that love me, that belong to me and to whom I belong. And I have a church family, my friends. What a blessing it is to have people that genuinely care for you, that pray for you. I'm not alone in this world. Even though the world can be a very lonely place, I'm so glad to know that there's a place that I belong. What I'm saying, dear friends, is unbelief is a preoccupation with the past. An attitude that looks longingly backward. Opting for personal safety. Oh, we, instead of facing the unknown tomorrow and obeying God and trusting Him, we, we prefer to just stay back here where we've been. 
you know, I've seen that attitude as we've transitioned from the shutdowns and all of the, uh, you know, each of us have struggled with it, haven't we? Okay, should we let go of the past and move forward? There's a risk involved. But I'll tell you, if you trust God, my friends, you can move forward to embrace the rest that is available to you. But if you insist on protecting yourself, opting for personal safety, then you'll never press forward toward the rest that remains for the people of God. And why does the writer warn the Hebrews of the danger of unbelief in this passage? It's because in the face of persecution, they were in danger of repeating the error of their forefathers. So he tells them, beware of murmuring and complaining. Beware of the attitude that looks backward instead of forward. Unbelief will rob you of the rest that is available for your soul in this world. My friends, may I say this gospel rest is the true Sabbath rest. It's a better rest than the creation Sabbath. It's a greater rest than the possession of the promised land. If you really want to understand this passage in Hebrews 4, think of the Venn diagram. Some of you are familiar with the Venn diagram in which you have two circles that intersect and overlap each other. And in the area where they intersect, that's what they have in common. Here's the first circle in the Venn diagram. It's the creation rest, Sabbath rest, the weekly Sabbath. And here's the other circle. It's the rest of the land of Canaan. And where he uses both of these illustrations to teach this lesson that they both have in common, there is a rest, a gospel rest, available for God's children right now in this world. And there's no reason you shouldn't be enjoying it and that I shouldn't enjoy it and enter into it, my friends. It's the rest that is to be found in Jesus Christ. He is our Sabbath. Jesus is the true Sabbath. And if you want another verse to sort of interpret what I've preached to you this morning, it's Matthew eleven twenty eight, where Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Does that describe you today? And I will give you rest. Are you tied in knots on the inside today? Are you fretful, angry, worried, stressed, anxious? about the future. Bring your burdens to Jesus. Are you laboring under false teaching, the yoke of legalism, the burden of keeping the law? So many of God's people, I think, are wandering in the wilderness of this world trying to please God based on their own righteousness. I'm telling you, dear friends, there's a rest to be found in the finished work of Jesus Christ. To know that He's your righteousness. He's the true Sabbath. Just as God ceased from his own works, you and I need to learn to cease from our works as the ground of our righteousness before God and trust completely in the finished work of Jesus Christ. What I'm saying this morning is there is a spiritual Sabbath for your soul. And that's where I need rest more than in my body. See, Brother Mike, I just need a vacation. Well, I need a vacation in my heart. And you do too, whether you know it or not. That kind of quietness and complacency and contentment that results from knowing that Jesus is my Savior. Heaven is my home. He's already accomplished the great victory for me. He's solved my biggest problem. In the good news of the gospel, my friends, there is a rest for God's people. No wonder the hymn writer Mary James could say it like this, In the rifted rock I'm resting, safely sheltered I abide. I'm resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm talking about this morning. 
St. Augustine, Bishop of Hippo in North Africa, said in the fourth century in these immortal lines, O Lord, thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. I want to say this morning, people are trying to find rest of soul through the pursuit of wealth, the collection of material possessions, through the pursuit of pleasure, or the enjoyment of leisure. They're saying, I'm just seeking something. Something's missing in my life. I'm telling you, dear friends, unbelief is the quest for inner satisfaction and peace. Every place except for the one place it can be found, which is God. And if you've heard the good news of the gospel, my friends, don't walk away from it. But know that there is one place of quiet rest. And it's in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's a rest that is so precious that the Christian is summoned to labor to attain it and to fear lest he miss it and come just shy of it in his or her life. You say, Brother Mike, I'm struggling with a heart of unbelief. I just I don't want to know whether I should trust God and move forward or whether I should stay back here where I feel safe. Well, verses 12 and 13 tell us that where there is hardness and unbelief in our hearts, the Lord will reveal that. For the word of God is quick, he says, and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. May I suggest for you that the word of God in verse 12 is not the preached word or the written word. It's not an it, it's a his. You see the pronoun? The word of God is quick, it's alive, it's powerful. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in, you would think if he was talking about the Bible, he'd say neither is there any creature that's not manifest in its sight. But notice it says neither is there any creature that's not manifest in his sight. The word of God is a hymn in this passage. For all things are naked and opened to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We do our business with God, my friends, and the Lord is, is going to reveal the heart of unbelief. Now, I, I dare say that unbelief principle is in all of our hearts to a certain degree. We're all just a bit hesitant to trust God, to take the risk. But you can move forward, my friends, and say, I'm going to do what he says. I want to pursue that rest. Trusting him, I move forward. And if you're a bit hesitant today, may I say, the living God will reveal that to you and show you that it's time to move forward in faith and to cease to quibble and to quarrel and to say, well, one day. No, today is the day. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. In the rifted rock I'm resting, safely shelter.